Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another podcast brought to you by the Review of Religions. The Review of Religions is an international magazine that is published by the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, a global organization dedicated to promoting interfaith understanding. The Review of Religions has been in print since 1902 and is one of the longest running comparative religious magazines. Today, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Fahim Yunus, who is the Chief Quality Officer and Chief of Infectious Diseases at the University of Maryland, UCH. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Yunus. Welcome again. for having me. No, thank you so much for giving us your time once again. Um, six months ago, we spoke to you at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and here we are six months on. And certainly we here in the UK, like in other European countries, are in what seems to be a second wave of COVID-19. Death rates are uh, rising across the world. Um, is this what you were expecting six months ago? Yeah, I think it's good and bad. The bad part is that much of the developed world, I'm specifically talking about Europe and US, have not really controlled this virus as well. U.S. particularly, we have been extremely polarized because of the politics. We had the best scientists in the world, the best infrastructure, the best information. And yet we in the U.S. have the largest number of cases in Europe, as you hinted, is most likely now going through a resurgence. So that's where some of the dismay lies. What's good that I think it has brought a lot of common humanity in all of us out so far, the testing is now far more prevalent as compared to six months ago. Our treatment protocols are much more established. And according to some British studies, the intensive care mortality for coronavirus has gone down by over 30%. I can tell you some of the diseases that we've treated in 30, 25 years of my career, their mortality hasn't gone down by 30%. Sepsis, for example, sepsis mortality has not gone down by 30% in 25 years of my practice. And COVID's mortality has gone down more than 30% in six months. So that is phenomenal. The fact that we are likely to have a vaccine in record time is phenomenal. So that's the good and bad of the pandemic so far. So would you say we are in a better place this time around? It's an interesting question. I think if, God forbid, somebody had to pick and choose that they had to get COVID in 2020, I think they're better off being a COVID-positive patient now as compared to March and April. No question about it. We are in a better place in terms of testing, hospital capacity, PPE, treatment. But Nationally, our country is in a better place. Geopolitically, are we in a better place? I don't think so. I think a lot of this is a thin veneer and there's a lot of economic turmoil that is going under the surface. And my fear is in 2004, honestly, I did not even know what the word tsunami meant. When the tsunami came and I was serving in humanity first back then, and then we realized, okay, there's an earthquake that actually happens under the ocean which can then impact the land so many minutes or hours later. My worry is, is there a silent tsunami with this pandemic that's gonna come three years, four years, seven years down the road? Do you wanna say a bit more about that? I'm kind of interested when you say, you know, silent tsunami coming, are you thinking about 
the economic impact? Are you thinking about economics and health impacts? I think as people of faith, you can't help but connect everything or try to connect whatever Holy Quran has said, what Rasulullah has said about the latter days, what our khulafa have reminded us. Now imagine every word that Hazur has been saying. And trust me, I'm saying this as a scientist. Uh, I'm not trying to just over-spiritualize something. But the facts are facts. Are we seeing new blocks being made or not? We are. We are seeing, you know, Russia aligning one way, China aligning another way. We're seeing a very consequential election coming up in U.S. within a month. We are seeing massive drop in GDP of large countries. And at the same time, you're seeing countries where sports are going on, where pandemic is literally non-existent. China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Vietnam, New Zealand, Germany is in a better place. So when you look at all of that and you look at the human suffering and the uncertainty and how we have continued to politicize the virus, uh, I mean, that gives you a pause. At the end of the day, it's all one delicate balance. And here you are, you know, the biggest, one of the safest things the world tried to do in the past 20 years is to denuclearize ourselves. You know, we were all worried about nuclear weapons and we thought that they were a sense of security. Now, no one can go and kill this virus with a nuclear weapon. It, it, it should give us a pause. Are you um, suggesting perhaps, as His Holiness has suggested on various occasions, that we are heading as a consequence of all of this towards World War Three. Yeah, so there are certain words that only a father can say and a son dare not repeat. This is one of those. Okay. I, I will simply ask people to listen to what Hazur has said, but I don't have the courage or the spine to even repeat those words. You, you're exactly in the same category. You know, you're hitting the right part of my brain with that question, but I can only do istighfar and I, it sends chills down my spine. Perhaps that's something we can also return to a little later. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit and just do a little bit of reflection now, perhaps, because it's so great to have you here six months on. You have been a great advocate for simple solutions to this pandemic, um, hand washing, social distancing, face masks. Are these measures working, do you think? Sure. You know, first of all, whatever I say, I like to align myself with the herd. Is an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, walk alone. If you want to go far, walk with others. So scientifically, I've always tried to walk with the scientific community. What I've said is precisely what the World Health Organization is saying. That's precisely what the CDC is saying. And that's precisely what other countries have done. You know, just think about it. New Zealand does not have a secret vaccine in their basement that they're not sharing with the world and they're secret, secretly giving it to their people. Or China or South Korea or Taiwan or Vietnam. Vietnam, I always say, because nearly 100 million people in a relatively poor country, they don't have some fantastic treatments that we don't have access to. So how did they crush this pandemic? It's just by these simple measures. On a communal level, from a policy standpoint, it's test, trace, and isolate. On a personal level, it's face mask, social distancing, and avoiding crowds. 
And I keep telling people, don't crave fancy solutions to simple problems. That's proven. That's good enough for us. That, that's really interesting. Um, some might say, though, uh, or question, how do those measures, how can they work in countries where you do have really high levels of poverty and, and um, gross poverty and overcrowding with families living in very, um, you know, condensed situations where social distancing is almost impossible? What, what would you say to that? They're absolutely right. First of all, uh, I completely agree with that. I am of the view that achievable is always better than desirable. In life, we all, this is not just for pandemic and poverty and everything. We prioritize, don't we? Uh, when we are healthy, we fast. When we are traveling, the next best thing is not to fast and do it later on. If you have a lifelong illness, the best thing is not to fast and just give your fidya. So I think there are those conditions. This, this is why deen is so practical for us, that Islam teaches us, you just do the next best available thing, number one. Number two, when it comes to these countries where there is poverty, uh, by the way, before I forget, I'm never a big proponent of lockdowns and shutdowns. By social distancing, by these measures, I'm never saying countries should shut down because that will be economic suicide in many of those poverty-stricken countries. What I'm saying is you do the very best that you can. For example, social distancing is the, any, is the only thing I can see where people may struggle with. Say India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, people have to get into a train or a bus to get to work. They have to uh, go out every day to make a living. I get that. But in that situation, what I tell people is invest in an N95 mask. Try to get the best. And I think the government's responsibility should be to provide N95 medical level masks to people, number one. Number two, still wash hands. Don't shake hands with people. And number three, do the best you can. If there are two people standing in a train together, at least don't face each other. And none of this is the people's problem. It's about consistent public health messaging. And I've seen patients, I've seen nearly 25,000 patients in my career. I do this every day where people ask me these practical questions and I'll pull a chair, sit next to them and just walk them through. So I think what you need is consistent, simple messaging. So if you cannot avoid, as I gave a very specific example, if I'm standing in a crowded tube today in London and I must do that, there's no way for me to avoid it. I'll try to find a spot where at least I'm not facing someone. I'll try to wear an N95 mask. I'll keep a hand sanitizer in my pocket and then I'll just do Durud Sharif and run with it. Thank you. That's a, a very practical answer to that. Thank you very much. Um, let's, let's move on a little bit now. Um, again, we've had um, six months of COVID, probably more actually, but um, are we any clearer, do you think, about the long-term effects of COVID-19 on physical health and mental health? There are some people, for example, who have contracted COVID-19, not needed hospitalization, but are still experiencing multiple health problems, uh, having supposedly recovered, and, and this is now being termed long COVID. I wonder if you could um, tell us a bit more about this. That's a very difficult question. The short answer is we don't know everything. 
And this is important because once I'm done with my long answer, I'm going to remind me to come back to the short answer. Okay. <laughs> because I think there are too many unknowns here. First of all, how many of those symptoms are going to be objective versus subjective? By that, I mean, headache is a subjective symptom. If I say I have headache, there's no way for you to measure that. But if I, if I say my joint is swollen uh, or I have a fever, that is an objective symptom. You can now measure my temperature and say, yeah, it was 103. So number one, that is important because as physicians, as researchers, we think that way. Uh, that's not to doubt anyone's intent. That's not to say it's in your head or you're lying. That's not to question the patient's integrity. But that's, that is how you assess population. So number one is when you read about long COVID symptoms, always ask these questions. Number one. How many of those symptoms are measurable? Number two, is there a correlation? Is it happening more commonly among rich, developed Western countries versus the developing world? Number two. Uh, number three, what is the incidence? Is it one in a hundred patients who are coming down with those symptoms? Is it one in a thousand, one in a million, one in 10 million? Because that will be important. Uh, the Incidence of a disease ultimately dictates how much worried we should be. Because if it's one in a million, one can make an argument, you know, that so many other things have a one in a million chance. So are we under or overreacting? And the last part for your listeners is important because this is nothing unique to coronavirus. I'll give you an example of enterovirus. This is another seasonal virus. There's no treatment for it. People get a cough and a cold and every year it happens. I would say probably millions of people if we really did testing. We don't test because there's no treatment and 99% of the people get better by themselves. But there are people who end up having heart failure because of enterovirus to the point where they need a heart transplant or they die. That bad. Right. I've seen enteroviral meningitis. Every year I see patients who end up getting a spinal tap, they have pounding headaches and they have objective measurable virus in their spinal fluid. So there are other viruses that can sometimes have prolonged symptoms, but what I, I'm going to come back to it, I think today people should be worried about preventing the first infection. They should not worry about long COVID because they have no control over it. As researchers, as governments, we should not minimize it. We should give it the due respect. But my last point, which I started, we don't know everything. It's still evolving. It's very interesting because um, certainly from a mental health perspective, some people say that the recovery seems to be different from other post-viral infections, that there's something about recovery here uh, that is different. And I guess also some people now will be, you know, thinking about, um, I, I seem to have symptoms of flu. Have I got COVID? Um, and, and getting really anxious because, you know, the public mindset yeah. is so alert to yeah. this, this, this killer, you know, disease. Absolutely. And I, I wondered if you had any, you know, um, for our, I'm thinking about people who might be listening into this, who sort of think, oh, I've got a sore throat got a cold uh i think i can feel a cough how how would they know this certainly here in the uk we are you know in flu season what would you say to them 
So clinically, the symptoms can be very similar for both diseases. And I think if people really want to know, the best thing is to get tested for flu and for coronavirus. That's going to be the only sure way of telling one from the other. And actually, it's very common that some people who have symptoms will have neither one of these viruses. They will be negative for both. And they may have a third virus because that's what happens every winter. From a clinical standpoint, uh, we don't know how much of influenza is truly asymptomatic because we don't do mass testing every year like we're doing for coronavirus. To give, your, give you an idea, uh, every, you know, I, I work in two different hospitals, hundreds of patients get admitted. Every patient these days who get admitted to a U.S. hospital, at least to our hospitals, get tested. We never do that for influenza. If somebody you know, falls from a roof or a ladder, breaks their leg, they come to our hospital, they came for a fracture in their leg, we are going to test them for COVID. Yeah. Ladies that are coming in for deliveries for children, they're getting tested for COVID. People yeah. who come in with a stroke for anything, and guess what? Every day we find three, four, five patients who are positive like that, that so asymptomatic. So I think flu versus COVID is going to be largely indistinguishable. It's best for people to get tested for both because their treatment is different. Unless you're planning on just isolating yourself for 10, 14 days, that's fine. Then you probably don't need a test. You'll just get over it. But if you're planning on being out and about, or if you're the, over the age of 65, or you have morbid obesity, you have high blood pressure, diabetes, or any of those other immunocompromised conditions, the treatment is very different. The prognosis can be different. So I think people should get tested for both. And while we're on that subject, best to get a flu shot as soon as you can. So at least you can mitigate the risk of one of those viruses while that vaccine is available. I want to come back to the subject of vaccines in a minute. But just while we're sort of on, on the subject of, um, of the uh, kind of evolution of this disease, you know, at the start, um, six months ago, uh, it seemed that... Um, uh, COVID-19 wasn't affecting young people. Now we're hearing about children and young people being affected. Um, here in the UK, uh, and I'm referring to the UK because I'm not exactly sure what's happening in the States, but here in the UK, students are in lockdown. They've gone back to university. They're actually in lockdown in many universities because, because they're all, you know, uh, they've contracted COVID. Um, and I wonder, um, has the thinking about uh, the um, risk to young people changed um, in, in the medical community? So, so far, I think this is one area which we understand really well. And this is where there is a direct correlation with the age. If you look at that graph that literally goes up like this, what I mean by that, everyone is susceptible to COVID, but not everyone is likely to get hospitalized or have severe disease or death from COVID. So the susceptibility, if 100 people are out there, some are five years old, some are 85 years old, I think by and large, they're all equally susceptible. If everyone did the same activity, your chance of exposure or attack rate, as we say, will probably be same across the age. So children or youth are not immune from the disease. What is different though, is the risk of hospitalization, the risk of developing severe disease or dying there is no question, it directly increases. There's a direct correlation with age. Now, I know sometimes as a 25 year old young person who succumbs to COVID makes headline news and it's very tragic, but I 
don't know if that's, you know, again, it's important. It's the right messaging. So everyone knows that no one, no one is immune from it. But still, the truth, the scientific truth is that someone who's 25, their overall chances of bad disease are clearly less as compared to someone who's 65. The problem with this message is if people hear and they have selective hearing, uh, which many of us do, <laughs> uh, we just like to hear what favors our position and then they go to play sports and partying tomorrow. That's the wrong action. Right. I think this allows you to serve more on the front lines, for example. How, how can this information be positively used? I think young people should be serving on the front line. They should be protective of elders at their home. If I'm 25 and I'm going to college when I come home and if I have grandparents at home, I better really take good care and of my hand washing and myself for them. Because if I was asymptomatic, I gave it to them, they may have bad disease. So I think there's a responsibility that comes with that. But overall, those are the numbers. Which is interesting because um, you know schools are opening up as well. So I guess it's also going to be putting adults at risk because children who contract yeah. it and therefore spending a lot of time together are yep. possibly going to be those that actually spread uh, the um, spread COVID-19. Yeah, schools is a very difficult, complex topic as well. And the simple answer there is control your community spread and open the schools. Don't look at these things as separate. We can't look at demographics separately when people are all together when they come home. That's a, that's a false narrative. I think it's just false sense of security. So again, look at Taiwan, look at Hong Kong, New Zealand. They have schools open because their overall positivity is now less than 1%. They have a robust contact, test, trace, isolate system in place. So if we have a community, and this will change from state to state sometimes in the same country, like in U.S., New York City right now has a percentage of 1% one, 1 test positivity. If they want to open school, by the way, honestly, this is how big this country is. I live three hours away from New York. I really don't know if New York schools are open or not. I think my wife will. Uh, she has better COVID situational awareness in the country than sometimes I have. But if New York State said we want to open schools, I think that's reasonable because they have community control of the disease. Right. Right. And if a child were to be symptomatic, they can very quickly isolate, test. And there is a counter impact. There's a harm of lockdowns of keeping schools closed. If you look at the risk of anxiety, depression, and mental illness, particularly yeah. in U.S. right now, it's gone up by 30% compared to the same time last year. And that's not just some hocus-pocus number. This yeah. means there will be more suicides likely. There will be more... Uh, hospitalizations, there will be more morbidity. I mean, there is a suffering. So it's a balancing act on both sides. But if you don't have community control uh, over the disease, then opening the schools is only going to add more fuel to the fire. That, that's, really, that's really interesting to hear that. Um, just again, sort of staying on this subject just for a little bit longer. Um, I wonder about what COVID-19 taught us about health inequalities. Um, and here in the West, we're hearing a lot about the um, relationship between contracting COVID and coming from an ethnic minority background. Um, but it seems, if we if we believe what the media is telling us that, and you know what we're hearing is that the deaths from COVID nineteen 
seem to be lower in the countries of origin of those people from ethnic minority backgrounds. I mean, is that correct? How, how do we explain that? Yeah, there are multiple nuances, complexities, knowns, unknowns in the question. Let's try to break them one by one. One is a question of ethnicity and one is a question of nationality. One is place of birth, one is color of skin, right? They're different. Right. So let's separate the two. In US, many of, and in some states, almost up to 40%, you know, 12% of US population is African-American. While in some places, 30 to 40% of COVID population is African-American. They are getting the disease, African-Americans and Hispanics, they're getting the, their incidence is higher, their mortality is higher. Now that's not because their skin color. That's because of the inequity in the society. Because if a Hispanic, if 100 Hispanic people are all working in a meat factory in a huddled, oppressive environment and they don't have good access to healthcare, remember in US, healthcare is not a basic human right. People have to buy it like anything else. And a lot of people skip buying healthcare because they, they can't afford it. Uh, for a family of four, sometimes it could be $1,000, $1,500 a month. It could be that kind of an expense. So people have to worry, should I pay my rent? Should I get healthcare for my family? Right. Now, if you're a meat, meat factory worker, you're Hispanic or African-American, you get cold, cough, you're likely to get it because you're, there's no social distancing there. You may be living in America, but you're operating like Sudan in that factory. And number two, once you have cough and cold, you're likely not to seek medical help because you don't have coverage. You don't want to spend money. So therefore there is more mortality, morbidity. That's because of disparities in our system. That's tragic. And I first read a study 20 years ago. It's vividly etched in my memory. It was in New England Journal of Medicine. You could Google it about African-Americans and whites coming to a hospital if both had chest pain it's much more likely for a white person to get cardiac catheterization and be thought of as a heart attack versus an African-American where we try to, you know, according to that study, they were not taken as seriously and they did not get the treatment for a heart attack as much as the white people would get. So there is this inherent disparity in our society. There's no, no two ways about it. It has been well-researched, well-published. Second part of the question is the death rate in some of the countries like India, Pakistan, many other, or Africa. That's a big unknown. The term I use for that is a data fog. As physicians, it's very hard for us to make decisions with incomplete data. Pakistan has done, you know, I think U.S. has done 10, 20% testing as compared to Pakistan. U.S. has done 6%, uh, not percent, times, six-fold testing than India, maybe 10 or 15 fold as compared to Pakistan. So what I mean by that is, if you don't test everyone, you don't know how many people are actually dying of the disease because somebody, you know, somebody's 80 years old, they had a heart attack and we said, all right, Abaji died of a heart attack. Well, Abaji may have had COVID underneath and COVID may have caused a blood clot or stroke. So there are many manifestations of this disease, particularly in the elderly. And I know people in, the, in those countries, they don't like me saying that because they're like, well, our hospitals are all empty. You think we are lying? No, we're not questioning your integrity. This is a good, deep conversation about how we approach these complex problems. The fact 
that hospitals are empty is a very poor indicator because what happens in a disease like COVID earlier on, there is mass hysteria, there is fear of the unknown. So everybody just goes to the hospitals and hospitals are teeming with mildly ill patients and very ill patients and capacity issues and relatives. So this always happens with swine flu, with Ebola. This happens with every big outbreak. Once you are three months, six months into it, the hysteria phases away, people now sick and tired and exhausted, and only the sickest people are gonna go to the hospital. Here's an interesting anecdote. In US, about a thousand people are dying of COVID every day. Dying, right? Those Mm -hmm. are deaths. We know that this is still an undercount, that there could be many more deaths which are unaccounted for. However, no hospitals are overloaded in US. If you come today in Wisconsin, which is one of the hot states for COVID, the hospitals are actually not overloaded. So this is very interesting. It's nuanced, but people need to think about it. So what I'm saying is in some of the countries, I believe, unfortunately, many more people are dying under the radar. However, knowing their complexities, knowing their economics, knowing their infrastructure, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. Maybe there's nothing more you can do. Maybe that's the tragic part of it. But I cannot with conviction tell you that the death rate in certain countries is low unless we have equivalent data in both places, which we don't today. We're living in a data fog. I get that. And you also said something actually quite interesting, which is perhaps this correlation between ethnic minority um, status and Um, death from COVID is one that needs a lot more examining because perhaps underlying it are, you know, what we've talked about before, which is health inequalities, uh, rather than just because you seem to belong to that group and therefore, for whatever reason, are more susceptible, um, which is interesting. Um, Having said that, the statistics in this country, and I, I won't go on about this too long, but we did, we do have, have had quite a number of deaths of health professionals from ethnic minorities. And of course, our NHS is largely staffed by ethnic minorities. Um, but these are people, you know, who who one wouldn't consider to be, uh, you know, in um, socially deprived circumstances. So interesting. I mean, it's an interesting discussion and perhaps one we, we should return to, um, but it is fascinating. And it means we need to question data quite a lot, don't we, uh, in terms of what, what we see. Yeah, I know we're learning. There's a lot going on and that's the humbling part of medicine in general. The more we know, the more we don't know. For example, in that situation, it, could, it is possible that people who work in healthcare, they could be getting exposed to a whole lot more dose of the virus. Every virus has an infective dose for simplicity purposes. Let's say if I'm gonna catch measles, and I I must inhale 10 viruses of measles. I'm just making up these numbers. That if if I must inhale 10 viruses of measles for me to give disease, if it's six or seven, my immune system is gonna kill it. But if I inhale a thousand measles viruses, I'm likely to die from it because I just had a big dose. So there is a theory out there that sometimes if people who are on the front line, if you get exposed to someone who has massive amount of virus, and you were close to them for a prolonged period of time, and you got a massive inoculum, this, your outcome could be different. So that's yet another twist in this whole story that so much we just simply don't know. Are certain ethnicities 
at a, a genetic advantage? We don't know that's possible because there are genetic determinants with every viral illness. Is exposure to BCG in the past or exposure to many other infections in the past is protective? We don't know. So when we don't know, my, my theory is when you don't know, you never assume that you're special. You assume you're ordinary. You assume the law of nature will work for you just like it's working for everybody else and not be complacent. Thank you. That's, that's a really uh, interesting response. Let's move on to vaccines. Vaccines are, you know, supposedly on the horizon. What, what are your thoughts about how safe they're likely to be? Because this is a question people ask. Yeah. We're rushing out there producing vaccines. But how safe are they going to be, do you think? We don't know. Uh, it will depend once the vi vaccines are available and we are able to study the phase three trial data. But let me just break it down for everyone's understanding. A vaccine typically goes through three trials. Phase one trials is maybe 10 or 15 patients, different doses. We try to see if it causes any harm. Efficacy is less of a concern. Then phase two, you maybe go to 100, 200 patients and you repeat the same thing with a little bit more tightening of the system. And phase three, where you go to 10, 20, 30 thousands of patients, and now you're trying to discover if there are rare side effects, something that happens in one in a thousand is not gonna show up in a phase one trial, or it's less likely to show up in a phase one trial. These vaccines, there are about nine vaccines in phase three trial right now, which means these vaccines have gone through phase one and two. They were deemed safe in phase one and two. And now they're going through tens of thousands of patients. No vaccine is gonna be 100% safe, number one. I know recently Oxford vaccine had a couple of patients with neurological complications. That does not surprise me at all. When you have 10 or 20,000 patients, you should expect some side effects. So number one, it's not gonna be 100% safe. Will it be 90 or plus percent safe? Very likely. Will it be close to 99% safe? Also likely. Usually these vaccines are very safe. Efficacy, and the safety is always measured in the backdrop of disease, right? Today, a thousand Americans are dying of COVID every day. I cannot imagine a vaccine that will be killing a thousand people a day. Right. That I can tell you right now. So that's how you want to compare it. Yeah. But then, of course, you want it. That's not to say that if a vaccine kills 500 people, we'll take it. No, no, no. We want a very big differential. A thousand people with versus perhaps one, if that's the kind of equation we'll be looking for. So I think number one, people should know that regulatory bodies are not likely to approve a vaccine that is not safe, number one. And I understand the politics and people's mistrust will come to that subsequently. And number two is efficacy of a vaccine, how good it is. These vaccines are not designed to be 100% effective. They're typically designed to be 50, 75% effective. Influenza vaccine we use every year, it's in that range. There have been years when a flu vaccine was 30 or 40% effective. So that's the second part. And then third thing is one thing we're never going to know, which is long-term safety. If something happens five years from now, we are only going to find it five years from now. So yes, there are going to be unknowns with the vaccine, but I would say hang in there chances are more than one vaccine will get regulatory approval before the end of the year. I think the 
UK-based Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine will be one of them. I think Moderna's vaccine from US will be one of them. Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson could be one of them. So out of these, and there's a uh, Chinese vaccine as well. So these five, there's a very good chance three or four may get approval by the end of the year. And then we will learn more about it as to how safe or effective they are. But today we don't have all the data. I tried to just break it down for everyone to understand. So those people who say, I don't trust vaccines. You know what? Let, let the politicians get vaccinated before I'm going to do it. I don't know what's going on. What, what would you say to them? Say a vaccine comes out and um, they don't want to do it. What, what would you say to them? What would be the consequences if, you know, there are a lot of people in the population who say we don't want to get vaccinated? What's yeah, I know. I think this is this is a this is a philosophical argument which will never end. Anytime there can be two opinions about something, there will be two opinions. It's one of those. I know some of my very close friends uh, feel that way. Uh, they're still my friends. I don't hold it personally. But how do you approach it? <laughs> First of all, you don't turn it into a must-win argument. This is not an argument. This is about let's have a conversation. Let's hear each other out. I'll say this. We all know that the average age has gone up from 30 to 40 to 50 to now upwards of 80. Everybody celebrates that, correct? The average People age is mortality you mean, from COVID? Yeah. No, no. Average human age. Oh, sorry, sorry. COVID, right? Yes. Our, grandchildren, you know, our grandparents, in 100 years ago, an average person would live up to 30, 40, 45 years. Right. Today, right. that average age is upward of 85. So everybody celebrates that. It's all over the world. What people don't know, when you dissect that, that average age has gone up, there are two major determinants, two things that have changed that whole equation. You take those two things away, the average age will fall down to 50 or less. And you know the, what those two things are? One is infant mortality. And second is vaccines. These are the two game changers. If you look at history of mankind, right? because so many babies, you know, children either died in the first six months or they lived up to 80 years. Right. And if you take out all those who died, you know, you end up with 80. If you add them in an average, you, you end up with 40. So vaccines have, there is a no, I don't know how someone can deny the impact that that's a mathematical question that if anything we've eradicated from the world, it's because of vaccine. Smallpox, I don't think anyone on this call has ever seen a patient with smallpox. None of our children, thank God, have come down with smallpox. That's because of a vaccine. Right. That's not because the virus just went away. So the good that vaccines have done is very hard to argue against it. That's number one. Number two, where did the fear actually start from? There was the Lancet study, which was falsely linked with autism, even though they retracted the study, even though there have been many, many studies subsequently, then Hollywood gets on the bandwagon, then certain interest groups get on the bandwagon. And it's, you know, there is general mistrust in profit-driven materialistic societies. If we say that everything in our society is based on morality, that's not true. The reality is there's a lot of money making that goes on. Yeah. And unfortunately, we deplete the public's trust when they are bitten, once bitten, twice shy. So people are bitten somewhere, then they start losing confidence in everything. So I do empathize with a lot of people who don't have confidence in vaccines, but I take a vaccine myself. I have my children take it 
And if a good COVID vaccine came out, I'll take it. I have no problem. Do you think there's a certain number of people that will need to take it in order to eradicate? Um, that is correct. Yeah. So typically you would need a 60 to 70 percent population vaccinated for this disease to go away. Now you can say the natural disease have already caused some immunity, which is correct. But that number so far, when we do zero surveys, that number is around 10% for most countries or less. If it's 10%, the second question is, will that immunity wane away? If somebody got infected in March, will they still be immune by next March? And that's, that's a big if. So we, I don't know the answer, but I would not be surprised when these vaccines came out that they are recommended even for people who have recovered from COVID because the antibody and protective effect of a vaccine typically outlasts that of natural infection. That's an important point. Uh, some infections give you life. If you got measles, you're probably immune for the rest of your life. But as we know, if you get influenza, you're still, you're still prone to influenza next year. So I think 60 to 70% of population would have to take that vaccine, but every number will help us slow down the pandemic. 35% will be better than 30%. 45% will be better than 40%. So we'll try to push it as hard as we can. So, I mean, you know, a kind of a, a corollary to that is of course, um, issues about vaccine distribution. And, you know, we've heard about countries wanting to sort of hoard the vaccine. Um, you know, do you feel that might be a problem that some of the, you know, poorer nations in the world won't have access to that? And then, you know, the resulting implications for this pandemic, if that happens? I think, unfortunately, that's true. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we have. We have inflicted this wound on ourselves. If you look at the last hundred years, as a world, we've become more and more materialistic. We know that there's a divide in front of us. Children are dying of hunger. We didn't, I don't want to say we didn't care about it, but we didn't fix it. Let's put it this way. Uh, we have the rich and poor divide expanding in front of our eyes. You know, we know how, what percentage of wealth belongs to just handful of people. So that's, that's the backdrop. With vaccine, yes, it's, it's surely going to happen because the countries that have invested billions of dollars in research, they didn't just dish over the money, they have contracts in place that when you make the vaccine, the first 100 million I will get, or my country will get. So there is a graph in Financial Times, I'm happy to share with you offline, uh, that lists actually in a graphic form, they show you which country has bought how much vaccine. There were 10, 15 countries on that list. And guess what, the world is over 200 countries. So what's gonna happen to the rest of the 185 countries that are not on the list? Of course, they're going to wait. They may end up with an inferior product. They may end up with a product that is not as well studied. We will wait and see. But the unequal distribution of vaccine to me is, is a given. You know, we, Did we have equal distribution of PPE? Did we have equal distribution of testing for COVID? Did we have equal distribution for remdesivir, uh, the drug that we use? We don't. So it's, it's, it's a fact, unfortunately. I think, you know, the other extreme of all of this here, we're talking about COVID, we're talking about, you know, vaccines, we're talking about treatment. Of course, there's, there's another population out there that say, you know what, 
COVID-19 is all a big hoax. It's a man-made virus. Um, it's actually just another form of flu that's been diagnosed, misdiagnosed rather. You know, it exists, but it's been exaggerated. And I wonder, you know, as a, as a doctor, what, what you would say to those people, because there is actually quite a substantial uh, population who, you know, do think that. Yeah, I think that's it. It goes back to a man is known by the company he keeps. So, and there are so many. I, I don't want to just throw religious references, but you know what I mean. Islam is all about kunuma sadikin. So these days, the media we consume is our company. That is our virtual company. And if the media that I consume is just telling me the same echo chamber message of why it's hoax, then that's what I'm going to believe. Do people exaggerate? I do believe. I think that is true. One of the first articles I wrote about COVID in March when it came up, because I knew that was going to happen. That's my experience. And I said back then that we should try to avoid the extremes of no, no denial and no panic. We need to remain in the middle, the beautiful place called preparedness. And unfortunately, now we are polarized in those extremes. There is one extreme that says it's a hoax. And there's another extreme that says 90% of the people will develop long COVID. To yeah. me, that is an exaggeration. Yeah. You know, we're not going to say that. We don't know. And I think chances are a very small percentage will develop that. Don't, don't just say that, oh, 25-year-old people are dying like flies. That's an, that's an exaggeration. Yes, there will be occasional deaths among young. But let's just stay true to what the message is. The message is that we need to we can crush this disease by taking these simple measures. So yes, there are extremes in the narrative, but I think we got to stay in the middle and people ultimately believe the echo chamber that they're in. And unfortunately, we, they don't realize nobody likes to hear this, but in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. We make the choice. Um, you know, this whole pandemic has actually um, enabled us to see both the best and the worst of humanity. We've seen tremendous acts of altruism. Uh, we've seen selfishness, uh, you know, the panic buying that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. As a, as a medical professional, do you think that this pandemic has made people ask more questions about faith, the nature of existence, you, you, you know, you were talking earlier about where this may all end up and, you, you know, you referred to the kind of tsunami that, that might be underlying this. But, but do you think this has made people ask those kind of more spiritual questions? It's a great question. Honestly, I don't know, because in a strange way, I also live in my own ecosystem here in U.S. So I don't know how people in India are thinking, how people in Pakistan are thinking, in Africa, in Peru, in Brazil. There have been so many deaths all over the world. So I feel my gut says that this is much more grayer than what I see, but I have not seen much change here in the US. I'll tell you that truthfully. I think uh, the biggest change that people celebrate that, oh my God, we're having Zoom and WebEx meetings. To me, that's not a change. <laughs> I mean, that's not a lesson, that's an adaptation. You know, you just adopted to a situation. That's not a change. I go out in rain and I open up my umbrella. Wow, what a revolution. No, there's nothing fancy about that. So I think the kind of profound questions that you are suggesting, unfortunately, I have not 
seen people think that way. What this pandemic has done, it's, you know, it has just squeezed us. So when you squeeze a fruit, whatever is inside of that fruit, whatever that juice is, sweet, salt, bitter, it comes out. Mm. So it has just squeezed us. So whatever we were hiding on the inside is now coming out. If I was a bitter, angry person before on the inside, I'm becoming more angry. And if somebody was kind-hearted, that kindness is outpouring. So I think, and again, it may be a generalization. God knows best. That's my incomplete, humble view of the situation. I've just seen that this has squeezed all of us. And I'm, I'm seeing the impact of that right and left. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I think you are one of those individuals that um, we know you've been responding um, and provided a really invaluable service, a really invaluable, invaluable humane service. You've been responding across the world to people's questions, you know, via mainstream media, via social media. You've been responding to a lot of comments, both in, in the US and uh, abroad, and, and also particularly from the subcontinent, India and Pakistan. Um, how did you get involved in that? And how's that been for you? So uh, two points, I think. Uh, <clears throat> in med school, when I decided to come to U.S., uh, one of our late professors, may Allah bless his soul, Dr. Faisal Masood, he was a very smart man, left an amazing impact on our personality. And he used to either talk in Punjabi or in English. And I still remember he said, Puttarji, when he heard. And I, I was expecting a pat on the back that, you know, wow, I've cleared my exam. I'm going to U.S. He said, Puttarji, batti othe balo jithe hanera hove. Jithe pehle yaniya battiyan baldiyan othe jaake batti balanda ki fayda. He just said it like that. Essentially meaning that, oh son, light a lamp in darkness where there is always so much light and millions of lamps, why are you trying to light another lamp there? So he had, he had an anguish in that. And of course I came here for whatever reasons. And I did feel that, that I was just yet another lamp where there were millions of lamps. So number one, this pandemic has allowed me, it was, it was Allah's plan, but I, I can't thank God enough that uh, I feel, uh, Dr. Faisal Masood will be a little happy because I truly feel I was able to put a light in areas of darkness. Uh, when people reach out to me from, from Paraguay, from Mexico, from Guatemala, from islands, you know, places I never knew existed. And when they say, well, thank you very much. That was a question I, I was bothering me. I appreciate it. But here's the bigger point along similar lines. As this started and I was getting approached by a lot of important people from around the world. I saw it as a Khalif al-Masih's guidance that, you know, I'm trying to do this service. And, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not a big policy guy. I want to stay away from areas that are not my expertise. And what should I do? And Hazur's guidance that came back to me was very simple. That, look, don't think about yourself and keep serving. Essentially, don't expect a pat on your ba back don't try to insert yourself in the equation. Don't try to become famous. This is not about you. Just think of humanity and then don't worry about it. Just speak the truth. I cannot tell you that small little piece of advice how 
helpful it has been to me. Because if I were to say that shaitan didn't come in my brain during these six months, I'd be lying. I'm a human being. And I'm as vulnerable to shaitan as the next guy. But those words of Hazrat Sahib have literally become a shield for me. Like uh, times came, I felt like Captain America. Yeah, this is my shield. And by the way, I'm not an Avengers guy. My little daughter, she's into these things. Uh, she's still very young and pandemic is rough. So yes, I think this is... This is the whole picture. I feel good about it. I feel very purposeful. I think it's a time for us to get blessings and accumulate something for the hereafter by this service. I literally couldn't care less about myself. If this ended tomorrow, I'll go home, end of the story. I'm very happy playing with my children ball in the background. And I think people who don't have khilafat, uh, I don't know how they live because if it was not for Khilafat, there were so many forks in the road ahead of me that I'm pretty certain I could have taken the wrong fork. But those words of Hazrat Saab, and then when you listen to him every week or you ponder over it, it's, it's hard to express that, that bounty that Allah Ta'ala has given us. And one just keeps saying, Rabbana la kulubana, that, Oh Allah, if, now that you've guided us, don't turn our hearts. Zakhar, that, that's absolutely beautiful. And I think you certainly have been a lantern to many people through your myth-busting tweets. I just wondered as a last note, have there been any kind of surprises that, uh, you know, when you've done those tweets, has anything particularly surprised? <laughs> I think you know the answer. <laughs> surprises is once again, I've realized that there's a lot of hatred in the world. I've realized that there's a lot of judgment on there, I realized I'm not a big social media guy. I never made a Facebook page. I'm not on Pinterest, Snapchat, any of those. Twitter, I thought was a more mature audience, but still, you know, people say hurtful things. People judge your intention. I try to ignore all of that, but I also find it's important to do my piece there. So once in a while, I'll try to educate those people to try and clean up that environment. While I'm there, Wherever I am, uh, I like to make sure, as the Hadith says, to leave the place cleaner than I found. So yes, I do feel it's my social responsibility. There was a time Indians hated me for being a Pakistani. Pakistanis hated me for being an Ahmadi. <laughs> Americans hated me for being a Muslim. And the rest of the world hated me for being an American. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, by the grace of Allah, this is, this is the beauty of Islam. You know, Allah said to Rasulullah, just hear patiently whatever they say and part from them in a graceful manner. So one, you know, these moments make you wonder the, you know, we're nothing. We're not even the dust of his feet, but the kind of suffering that Allah's prophets go through or even our Khalifa right now, you know, I can't imagine the kind of hurtful things that Hazur gets to hear, but never even mentions to us. So, it gives you a little bit of that taste. So, yes, it's good. Jazakallah, <laughs> thank you so much. I know I've learned an awful lot from uh, reading your tweets. And I really want to thank you for your time. You've given us so much time. And I know that it's been uh, incredibly informative. And I really appreciate this time that you have given us. Jazakallah, thank you so much. Thank As you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Wa alaikum as -salam.